This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cohen Franz. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. Tonight I would like to start in with a new text called The Eight Awakenings of Great Beings. It's a fairly straightforward text. It's, it's fairly simple. And though I don't want to get into a lot of the specifics of the translation, since that can be a way of, of getting bogged down, uh, there is one point that I want to make that is critically important for how we understand this. It's called The Eight Awakenings of Great Beings. And great beings... Uh, in more conservative translations, is usually translated as Buddhas. So that's what a great being is, or that's one way of thinking about that. That's a very narrow way of thinking about it, that that's just, that's all it could be. And, and even if we step back from that term Buddha, which is a dangerous term, and it's one I kind of avoid using, I, because we, I think no matter how many times I say that a Buddha is an ordinary person, or how many years we repeat that to ourselves. At the end of the day, when you say Buddha, you imagine someone who is just a little bit supernaturally special, which is not the right idea. So this term great beings can seem useful, though personally when I hear great beings in the context of Buddhism, Rather than picturing the Buddha, I picture the people who flank the Buddha and are still dressed in robes and seem to live forever in the full lotus and always have a little half-smile and uh, also don't seem quite real. But we have this great uh, opportunity with this text because great beings in Japanese or in, in Sino-Japanese is, is pronounced dainin. It's a very simple word. It's, it's just big and person. It's a big person. And this same combination of characters in modern Japanese is pronounced otona, and it means adult. It's been said by more than one teacher in the modern age though uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche comes to mind as one example, that a bodhisattva is nothing other than an adult, a true adult. And though it may seem overly simple, I don't think it's an exaggeration to suggest that what Buddhism is doing is it's cultivating adults. I've told the story about the the gift card, the greeting card shop I walked into that had that plaque that said, an adult is someone who takes responsibility for their actions. That's a very good working definition for us of an adult in the context of practice. We can spend our whole lives just working on this one task of truly taking responsibility for our lives and not blaming our lives on anybody else. 
So even though the title of this is The Eight Awakenings of Great Beings, I want us also to understand this as The Eight Awakenings of Adults. For me, that's useful. And not surprisingly, it's in eight nice little sections. So it will be very simple for us to go through this. All Buddhas are great beings. Well, already there we know it shouldn't be. Great beings shouldn't be Buddhas because then it would read all Buddhas are Buddhas. All Buddhas are great beings. All Buddhas are adults. What great beings practice is called the Eight Awakenings. Practicing these awakenings is the basis for nirvana. When we hear nirvana, uh, we can substitute it for enlightenment. It's a lot of texts work that way. This is the last teaching of our original teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha, which he gave on the night he entered Paranirvana. This is a very old teaching attributed to the Buddha. So what I'm reading is a text by Dogen, but this is his telling of that teaching. And it's his telling in the year 1253, which is the year he died. So historically, this is also the last teaching of Dogen. It worked out very well. (laughs) As a result, this is a text that's commonly read, uh, not at funerals, but at, at something... There's a ceremony that's very similar to first rites, or last rites, I'm sorry, last rites, in a Buddhist context, in a, in a Zen context. And these days, because uh, in Japan people don't really want to talk about death very openly, this ceremony is usually performed just immediately after someone dies, because it seems a little too depressing to march in and sit by someone's bedside and say, we all know you're going to die and then read this text, even though that's a very powerful thing to do. So it's, it's a little bit unusual these days that it would be treated in the way that it was intended. But there are still some priests who will march in at that critical moment and start reading this thing and say, you should know this. This is the last thing you should hear. The first awakening is to have few desires to refrain from widely coveting the objects of the five sense desires is called few desires. I made the mistake earlier today. Uh, I was I was going to post on Facebook about this talk, and I, I was doing. I wanted to put an image with the post. So first, I I typed in few desires, and I didn't get it. I got weird weird stuff. So I thought, well, I'll take out the few. <laughs> And I, I, just, I just did an image search on desires. It turns out that there's some cultural agreement about the word, the things that come to mind when we say desire, right? It has this, this kind of uh, carnal power to it, this word. And of course, it's, it's uh, a very powerful word within the context of Buddhism because we we're all taught in uh, high school world cultures class, or I was, that all of Buddhism is summed up as all life is suffering and suffering is caused by desire. 
blah, 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 blah. So desire seems like a big problem. That's not a very good way to talk about the Four Noble Truths. We should really be saying attachment. That suffering is caused by attachment. They're close. But I think it's useful for us to acknowledge the desire in itself is a very human thing. It's wanting something. Wanting to have something for yourself. And I I may be drawing a false distinction, but I think we can be drawn to things in a way that is, is under the umbrella of desire. And that that's a little bit different from wanting to take that thing and keep it. I think about uh, how when I was young, maybe college age, I think I had a very narrow vision of what my life might be. And because I grew up in, in a fairly rural part of the United States, in Montana, and people tend to get married very young and they have children very young. And I liked kids and I remember I, I always thought I wanted kids. And so I would see them in the supermarket and I would, I'd think, oh, I, you know, I got to an age where I started thinking I'd like to have one of those. <laughs> you know, I'd like to take one home. And it's only good luck that the circumstances of my life didn't, you know, lead me to having one when I was 20 years old, uh, because I wouldn't have ended up where I did today. But, but I remember after kind of getting through that period, maybe, you know, a few years later, 23, 24, standing in a supermarket behind a little baby and looking at the baby and just, you know, you melt when you see a baby, right? Most people do. But realizing that I no longer felt that I needed to have one. That, that I could just really love being near this person and looking at this person and I could appreciate this person and I could take joy from this person. And I think there's an element of desire there. There's an element of wanting to reach out and touch something, you know. If the person ahead of me in line had handed me that baby and said, here, hug my baby for a minute, I would have said, okay, right? But finally, I was at a place where I could have handed the baby back and said, thank you very much. That next step of of being able to work with that, that attraction, that pull, and also understand that you don't need that object is critical, and it's critical to, I think, almost any understanding of what it is to be a functional adult. And in this practice as well, I think we we work with, with the paradox of this, that if you come to this practice, if you come and you sit, there's something that you want, there's something that you're drawn to, there's some outcome that even if you, you know, kind of develop the vocabulary of Soto Zen and you start to realize you shouldn't say it out loud, there's still something that you think you might want to get out of this. And yet, there's another aspect of this practice where we really find ourselves in the center of it when we decide maybe it's okay if I don't get that thing I wanted.
Or to give a more concrete example, I was speaking with someone recently about someone who was interested in being ordained as a priest. And what I told that person was, you need that, you need a certain passion to follow that path. If someone came to me and wanted to be ordained, I would want that person to be on fire with the practice, but I would also want them to understand that there's a whole life of practice without robes. It can't be all or nothing. So again, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm writing my own definition of desire. But, but I think it's, it's reasonable because what we're being told here by the Buddha and again by Dogen is that it's about few desires. <laughs> or if we're actually reading the characters, it also includes the idea of desire being small. So we can feel that pull, we can feel that attraction without being completely overwhelmed by it, without it making us a little bit stupid. The Buddha said, Monks, know that people who have many desires intensely seek for fame and gain. Therefore, they suffer a great deal. Those who have few desires do not seek for fame and gain and are free from them, so they are without such troubles. Having few desires is itself worthwhile. It is even more so as it creates various merits. Those who have few desires need not flatter to gain others' favor. I'll stop there for a minute. So he, he's framing this in a very, maybe not too specific context, but he's, 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 he's holding it in kind of a narrow way, I think, so that we can picture this. He says that those who are, who those who have few desires do not seek for fame and gain. And as a result of not seeking fame and gain, they need not flatter anyone. This to me is, is not a small thing. Because he's speaking to skillfulness in the world. This is not just internal. This is not some, you know, when I was young and I started reading about Buddhism and I read about the idea of going beyond desire or transcending desire, I think I pictured this, this kind of magnificent yet dead inside feeling in the world, you know, <laughs> it's like somehow it, I knew it would feel good because everyone seemed to be saying it would feel good, but that somehow anything that currently, you know, is attractive to me would just seem empty. I wouldn't want anything. I don't think that's real. But here it's being framed in terms of how we are relating to the world. Right. And what he's saying is that as long as you are caught up in wanting something that someone else can give you, your relationship with that person will not be authentic. You will not be an adult in relationship to that person. You will be a child. 
right? To my children, I'm a kind of God because I can open the refrigerator. (laughs) My son can kind of do it, but he can't really get to anything important. And my daughter still can't open the door, right? And that means that every once in a while, they start kind of batting their eyes at me, right? Because they know there's something good in there. They say, hey, Papa, (laughs) remember the ice cream? Yeah, I remember the ice cream. (laughs) I think about uh, wolves. You know, wolf puppies exhibit some of the behaviors of of domestic dogs, like barking. Barking is something that wolf puppies do, but they outgrow it. They don't do it anymore. Playing catch, things like that, those are puppy behaviors. But we've domesticated dogs in such a way that they're trapped in a kind of uh, perpetual adolescence, just like most of us. And so if a dog wants to threaten you, that dog will bark. Right? They'll throw a tantrum. But if a wolf wants to threaten you, they'll just look at you. Because a wolf knows that a wolf is a wolf. A wolf doesn't need anything from you. It's a completely different stance. It's not that you can't be friends with a wolf, because you can, but it's not going to be based on a parent-child relationship. If you're friends with a wolf, at best that's a relationship between equals. This teaching is asking us to grow up and be that wolf. Those who have few desires need not flatter to gain others' favor. It isn't written here, but we need to say the opposite, which is, those who have few desires are not affected when people flatter them. one of the most powerful tools we have is to pump up someone else's ego. But you can only do that to someone who wants you to do that. I'll continue. Those who have few desires are not pulled by their sense organs. This again is about being an adult. We don't have to think about this in some sort of supernatural way. Right? There was, there was a schism early in Buddhist history over the question of whether it was possible for an enlightened being to have a wet dream. This was a big deal. It caused a lot of heartache because there was a belief, a strong belief, that to be awakened meant that you would no longer 
feel the world in that way, that you would transcend desire even on a bodily level. But if we think about this in terms of being an adult, and again, not being some sort of high, dead-inside sage, it's not so complicated. There's nothing wrong with being attracted to someone. how or if you act on that attraction marks whether or not you are an adult. I can walk into a, a, a pie shop and want every single pie on the rack because every single one of them looks good. Right? But only the three-year-old version of myself would even entertain getting them all and breaking out a spoon. <laughs> Right. I know that that is not a healthy relationship. There's been a lot of, I think, very valuable conversation recently in the media about misogyny and about rape culture. And though I haven't heard it yet framed in this way, we can frame that conversation in terms of adulthood and what it means to be a true adult in society. It's not so complicated. It's just rare. Those who have few desires have a serene mind and do not worry because they are satisfied with what they have and do not have a sense of lack. That is so straightforward, and again, so rare. Those who have few desires experience nirvana, or again, realization. This is called few desires. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.